not one sinner will ever stand before God and be able to accuse him of not making his standard clear. It leaves them without excuse and under God's curse. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What is the biblical view of salvation? And why does that matter in today's world? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue with part two of a four-part series titled The Rich Young Ruler. If we're not careful, we as Christians can tend to dismiss the importance of the Old Testament law as outdated and unhelpful. But Christ Jesus and the apostles, they didn't think so. Both upheld the Old Testament as the Word of God, which was to be read, studied, and applied by the people of God. In our passage, Christ uses the Old Testament law as the starting point to his presentation of the gospel, to expose the darkness of the rich young ruler's heart in order to show him his need for the light of the gospel. Tom will challenge you to discern where you are in relation to the gospel. Are you in the light or do you remain in the darkness? Let's examine the matter carefully as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Jesus replied, why, what do you call me or why do you call me good? And why are you asking me about what is good? No one is good but God alone. This that Jesus is teaching him is in the category of what theologians call original sin. Every human being inherits from Adam ultimately, but through our parents, a package that theologians call original sin. What is it? Well, all we mean by that is you have imputed guilt. That is, you are guilty and I am guilty for Adam's choice. And we have inherited pollution or corruption. And that really comes as a package in two pieces. Total depravity, that is, every part of our being has been affected. doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be. No person is. Because of God's restraint in the universe, it simply means by total, it means every part of you. Every part of you has been affected by sin. And there's total inability Jesus is talking about total inability here. What he means is the utter inability for any human being to do anything God considers good. You realize that? There is not one thing one unregenerate human being can do that God considers good. It's not that we can't do good in some senses. I mean, we can still perform, as Louis Burkhoff says, we can still perform natural good, civic good. We can be good citizens. We can do external religious good. We can do acts of, of kindness toward others. The problem with the good we do is that it's not motivated by a genuine love for God. It's not done for His glory. And so in God's judgment, it's not good. It may look good here, but it doesn't look good to God. It doesn't meet the standard of goodness unregenerate man cannot do anything good. 
John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. In John 8, 44, he talks about us being children of the devil and carrying out the nature of the devil. In John 15, he says, apart from Christ, apart from me, you can do nothing that's good. In Romans 3, there is none who does good, there is not even one. That was the point Jesus was making. So, I said he was making two points in this statement. No human being is good. The second point he was making is that God alone is good. Only God achieves the standard of moral goodness. Now, what does that do to this young man's thoughts? It immediately brings this young ruler's ideas of achieving goodness crashing in around him. Jesus essentially says to him, no one but God has ever met God's standard. Let me say that again. He essentially says to this man, no one but God has ever met God's standard. So Jesus corrects his flawed view of sin But that wasn't the only problem with this young man and his views. Secondly, Jesus corrects his flawed view and confronts his flawed view of salvation. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments, and then he recites them. Again, Matthew fills out a little more of the conversation for us. We won't turn there again. But when you put the pieces together... Jesus lists five of the last six of the Ten Commandments. Essentially, he lists the second table of the law. The only one he leaves out is the tenth one, you shall not covet. And some commentators, and and I think they may be right, we can't be sure, think when Mark includes that expression, do not defraud, that is simply another way of saying, don't defraud your neighbor by wanting what he has and wanting to take it from him. It may be a reference to the commandment, you shall not covet. It's also possible that it's a, it's a specific command pulled from a couple of Old Testament passages in the law, not one of the Ten Commandments, but especially suited to this young man's wealth and how he used it. It has to do in context with, with withholding wages, not paying wages in a timely manner. It may be that was an issue in this young man's life. We just don't know. In response to the question, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud or covet, don't, and make sure you honor your parents. And then according to Matthew, Jesus summarizes the second half of the law, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. He just sort of throws that out there. And you shall love your neighbors yourself. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why? I mean, in answer to a straightforward question about obtaining eternal life, why does Jesus recite the law? Five of the Ten Commandments. Well, there are only two options. The first option is because a person truly can gain eternal life by keeping the commandments. As I'll show you in a minute, that's not possible. So that is not a legitimate option, but it's an option. That isn't what Jesus was doing. The second option is this. 
He, he gives these commandments to this young man because a person can never do this in a way that meets the divine standard. It drives him to God as his only hope. I mean, after all, the Old Testament does seem to say that keeping the commandments, keeping the law will provide eternal life. You can read Deuteronomy 30, 15. Do these things and live. Ezekiel thirty-three, fifteen. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he's taken by robbery, walks in the statutes which ensure life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. But we need to find out the purpose of the law. Jesus uses the law with this young man. What is the purpose of the law? Obviously, the Ten Commandments, and I use those interchangeably because when we talk about the Mosaic Law, there are three elements of that law. There's the, the ceremonial law, all the sacrificial system and all the things involved with that. There was the civic law that governed the law of the nation and its standard operating procedure. And then there was what theologians call the moral law. I've done a study on this, and at some point we'll do it together. I, I can absolutely tell you there is justification for that breakdown. Paul does it. But for now, you'll have to take my word for it. There's those three aspects of the Mosaic Law. The moral law is that part of the law of God that is a reflection of His eternal moral character and never changes, never will change, never has changed. It is encapsulated, summarized by the Ten Commandments. Obviously, the Ten Commandments were very important at the time they were spoken. They were audibly spoken by God. They were written by God Himself with His own finger on two stone tablets. But what about today? What is their significance? And what was their significance with Jesus and this rich young ruler? Based on the teaching of Christ and His apostles, listen carefully, the moral law and its demands remain in effect today serving the same purposes both for believers and unbelievers that it has always served. So what has been and still is the purpose of the moral law for unbelievers? The purpose of the moral law for unregenerate men and women is threefold. And stay with me because this will explain what Jesus is doing with the rich young ruler. First of all, it awakens their consciences. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If God hadn't said, thou shalt not, my conscience wouldn't have anything to say, you're wrong. It, it awakens their consciences. Romans 7, verse 7 says, without the law, Paul says, without the law, before I really understood the law, I did not know what sin was. I didn't understand that I shouldn't covet until I read, thou shalt not covet. And then I saw coveting of all kinds in me. This is what the law does. It awakens the conscience. There's a second purpose of the, of the moral law for unbelieving people. It's to drive them to Christ. It awakens their consciences. It says, sinner, sinner, you don't meet God's standard. And it drives them away from themselves to Christ. Galatians 3.22 
says Scripture has shut all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all who believe. And then he, in two verses later, he says this, the law has become our tutor to bring us to Christ. You know why? Because when you really read and understand the law of God, when you see what the moral character of God requires, if you're ever going to earn your own way to heaven, when you see that, you see it is completely hopeless. There's no way. And it drives you to throw yourself on Christ and on His mercy and on His work. So the law's whole purpose then in relation to our salvation or our justification is to become a tutor to lead us to Christ. That's what Jesus is doing with the rich young ruler. He's using the law to awaken this young man's conscience as well as ultimately to drive him to his need for something other than his own goodness. The third thing the law does, not only does it awaken the conscience and drive them to Christ, but thirdly, it leaves unbelievers without excuse and under God's curse. Look at Romans 3. Romans 3, verse 19. Here's where Paul wraps it all up. He's talked about the law, the failure to keep the law. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that's everyone. Some have it written, some have it written in their consciences. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God gave the law so someday when people stand before God, they can't say, I didn't know. You say, well, what about the person who doesn't have the Bible? Well, Paul argues in Romans 2, they have the law of God in its substance written on their hearts. They know they shouldn't be doing certain things, and they do it anyway. That native in some dark jungle somewhere understands that he is sinning against his own sense of right and wrong, implanted in his heart by God. And he does it anyway, so that no sinner will ever be able to stand before God and say, God, you didn't tell me. I didn't know. Paul says, every mouth will be closed. Not one sinner will ever stand before God and be able to accuse him of not making his standard clear. It leaves them without excuse and under God's curse. Now, Every unbeliever is still under the law. Still responsible to keep it. He can do three things. He can keep it perfectly and earn eternal life, which is impossible. He can fail to keep it perfectly and be judged and punished for every violation eternally in hell. Or... He can turn in faith and repentance to Christ, admitting his own inability and clinging solely to Christ's perfect keeping of the law. That's it. Those are the options. Really, there are only two. Now, do you remember the context of the story of the rich young ruler? 
You remember back in Mark 10? Go back to Mark 10. Look at verses 13 to 16. You remember the lesson from the children? Verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. You remember we talked about that. That means like a child having nothing to offer. No accomplishments, no merit, no achievements. You have nothing to offer God. You come like a beggar. You come needing God to act on your behalf because you have nothing to offer Him, just like a child has nothing to offer. That's the context. You receive, verse 15 says, you receive the kingdom of God like a child. It's a gift. Entrance into the kingdom or salvation or inheriting eternal life, all of those expressions used synonymously, is received as a gift, as a child who has no merit, has done nothing to earn it, but simply gets it as a gift. It only belongs to those who, like children, acknowledge their own helplessness and their utter lack of merit and achievement. Jesus is graciously forcing this young man to see just how desperately he needs Jesus in the gospel. And he brings in the law to help this man see how impossible it would be for him to do anything to obtain a part in the final resurrection. It can't happen. Boy, the law is so important. Walter Chantry, in his book, Today's Gospel, writes this, Hosts of Christians have a dreadful fear of God's law, as if it were the useless relic of a past age, the use of which in our day would keep sinners from the grace of God. Our Savior used the law as a primary tool in evangelism. He knew that preaching the Ten Commandments was the only way to teach a sinner his guilt and thereby stir within him a desire for God's grace. Listen, many well-meaning Christians water down the gospel by skipping the bad news and getting right to the good news. But listen, the cross means nothing to a sinner who doesn't know the bad news. If he doesn't know that he has sinned against a holy God, his creator, and that that sin earns him God's wrath and anger, and that he will experience that wrath and anger forever, then the cross doesn't mean anything. Let me encourage you to read Walt Chantry's book, Today's Gospel. I wish every person in our church would buy Greg Gilbert's book, what is the gospel and read it so you understand the gospel and you can share it with others. Read the book of Romans. Paul begins in chapter 1, verse 18, goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, with the bad news. God has a law that is a perfect reflection of his character, and he has made that law obvious. He has made it obvious in his word. He's made it obvious in the human conscience. He's written the substance of the law, Romans 2.14, on every single heart. And violating that law earns his eternal wrath and his punishment. That's the bad news. But it's the bad news that makes the good news good news. 
I've used the illustration before, but if you go into a jeweler's store, a nice jeweler's store, and you want to see a diamond, what do they do? They don't just lay it out there on the glass counter in front of you. They take a a black book, either of leather or velvet, and they lay that across the counter. And then against that black, pitch black background, they put that sparkling jewel, and it just causes the facets to go everywhere, radiates its brilliance. That's what the bad news of the law does for the gospel. When people understand that there's a holy God who's serious about His law and His character, and He will defend it, and He will punish those who violate it. And that's what they have to anticipate. When they really understand that, it makes the good news wonderful. I can tell you personally, in my own life, this is what the Lord used. I was sitting in a service on a Sunday night. I grew up in the church. My dad was a music director. He was saved before I was born. And we were always at church. In fact, I felt like we were at church a little too much. You know, other people didn't have to go all the time. We always had to go. And I was sitting in a service, a little tiny church in Mobile, Alabama. My dad was temporarily helping them with their music. And they had a visiting pastor. I remember his name because there was another person who was famous for the wrong reason at the time. His name was Gary Gilmore. And Gary Gilmore, that evening, simply taught about heaven from Revelation. The last two chapters of Revelation. Doesn't sound like a highly evangelistic message, right? It wasn't. It was all for Christians. There's just Christians there. And I'm sitting there with my Bible, and I'm reading with him passages I've read many times before. But he got to those verses at the end of the Revelation where it says, what won't be in heaven. And he didn't spend a lot of time on them. He just read them. Here are the kind of people that won't be in heaven. And he read the list. All liars. Uh Uh-oh. This isn't good. We haven't gotten into the list yet. And he continued to read. And the Holy Spirit several times just stabbed my heart. And I realized that there was and is a holy God who is serious about sin, my sin. And that someday, there would be justice done. And I realized I didn't want justice. I wanted grace. That's exactly what Jesus is doing with this young man. He's taking him to the bad news. Because he needs desperately to understand that apart from grace, apart from Christ, he has no hope. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his series, The Rich Young Ruler. Tom will have part three for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? And Tom, the Lord began with the law of God in his gospel presentation to this rich young ruler. Is that a direct example for we as believers today? That is absolutely right. It's, it's essential in the gospel Because not only is it true that God's law reflects his eternal moral character, and and that, of course, never changes, but Paul reminds us that the law is a tutor that leads people to Christ. It's only when you really understand the law of God and his character that it shows 
that you begin to understand you don't meet the standard and that your only hope is Christ, that there's no way you can work your way into God's favor. It's only once you understand that reality that the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes precious and inviting. That was really Jesus' point in the conversation he had with the rich young ruler. He was exposing that man's sin so that he would have an open heart to the gospel of grace. Thanks, Tom. And friend, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the word unleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the word unleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the word unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.